0: Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in scripture.
1: Welcome back. This is Andrew Brill. Welcome back to the Light Bears podcast. Uh, we have been walking through the Old Testament over the, the last really fall semester, we did that with all of our students and, and and traced through this narrative of God glorifying himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people. And so uh, today we're actually going to wrap up the Old Testament. We have uh, five, five books to cover. Uh, so we're going to look at Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, and then three prophetic books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so we're going to look at those five books. Uh, and we have Kevin McCollum, our executive director, here to talk about that. Kevin, obviously, good to have you here.
0: It's great to be here. Always love it.
1: Uh, we we left off, um, the last couple ones we did, We we talked about... Um, the Israelites going into this thing called captivity, and and they were books that we talked about written from this thing called exile. But but if you will, kind of set the stage a little bit for us. These five books are not actually the last five that are in the Old Testament. Why do we put these, these five books together? Just set the stage for us a little bit, and then we'll kind of kick it off from there.
0: Yeah, you're right. You know, um, you would think... Logically, you teach it in canonical order, and so we'd get you know the last five books of the Old Testament would be how we end. But, but really, you know, the Old Testament is is um, grouped more by genre and, and purpose uh, than it is sort of chronological order. So, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are both historical books that chronicle the um, sort of the resettling from captivity of the Israelites back into Judah, and, and then you have three prophets: Haggai, Zechariah. And Malachi, who are the last three prophets that speak in this, this time period. And so uh, two of which, Haggai and Zechariah, speak into the events of Ezra and um, Nehemiah, the events that they chronicle. And then you have uh, Malachi being this final prophet that we'll talk about.
1: So. so it's more of a historical grouping rather than a, this is the exact order that you see in your Bible when you pick it up.
0: Yeah, exactly. As we've been working with the students all semester and walking through just God's glorifying his Him, himself, glorifying his name by dwelling among his holy covenant people. We've watched that play out from just a um the actions, the historical account of the Israelites. And um and as as we've done that, um, uh, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah sort of bookend that for for the Old Testament. And so these three prophets um are in that same that same timeline. So we've just Committed to making it more of that sort of biblical narrative of the life of god's people and and it would make sense then these five books become the the last five that we we put together and it makes sense that they're taught together and not separately because I think they they keep each other um, you get a better understanding of what God's doing and what the response of the people uh, is to what God's doing because of these books being grouped together as we talk about them
1: and and hopefully students see these not as just these books from long ago, but as a story to use that word, as a, a history um that that is a, a big story rather than again just these old books. So um we said the word history a few different times. Start just by walking us through some of this history. Um what what is happening um over these, you know, 100, 150 years as these books are being written. Just walk us through the history and some of the key players uh historically we'll go from there.
0: Yeah, so we when Ezra um, and Nehemiah start, um, we find the Israelites in captivity. They're in uh, they're in Babylon. Um, the Babylonians had conquered the uh, southern kingdom of Judah and had taken um, most of the Israelites with them back to Babylon. They resettled them in new places, leaving Jerusalem and Judah really to pagans, to dogs, to um, thieves, and you know uh, and and um, in a sense, sort of decimated the kingdom. you know they, there was no uh, kingdom of Israel anymore, kingdom of Judah anymore. And so we start with them in captivity, which which lasted seventy years. But right before we get the account from Ezra and Nehemiah, the actually the Persians uh, historically conquered the Babylonians, and so you have a, a captured people who are now captured by a second A second generation, if that makes sense. So not only are they unable to free themselves from Babylon and they're in captivity um, as a minority people, but now even their oppressors have been conquered and now they're under a a more powerful oppressor. So that's where we begin uh, in the um, in this historical account. You can imagine that the Israelites at the time recognized number one that it was their sin that actually allowed them to go into captivity. Um, and, and the um, disappointment and really a sense of, of complete loss for them. You know they're, they're now without their promised land. They're now without the temple. They don't have the vestments or the articles necessary for worship according to the Mosaic law. Their high priest can't perform his duties. They, they've lost the, the kingship of David and this promised seed that would be uh, on the throne forever must, must have been in question for them um, what about them being the, the seeds of Abraham that would populate the earth and be a blessing to the nations and, and that you go back to the seed of Eve and all these promises from the old Testament They had to be in captivity, just, um, devastated at the reality that their sin has cost them everything. And even wondering, is God going to tear up the covenants now? Is he done with them? You know, do they have any hope? The hope is that they do turn to this
1: devastation, to this, um, I mean in a sense repentance that you know is what is what we would want for them um and then in the midst of this you know I know you've you've talked about this new ruler comes to power tell us who this new ruler is i mean and he's well known in extra biblical sources as well who is this
0: guy kind of walk us through what happens next yeah so uh 538 BC Cyrus the great comes in and defeats the city of Babylon in a sense sort of um, establishing the persian empire um which which um uh, was vast and um and so you have got to believe again that the israelites um are are just just getting closer and closer to extinction as a people or being uh, unknown you know as a people um and so what about their god what about you know all of these promises but what they what they failed to see or what what you imagine majority of them failed to see is God's sovereign hand in all of this. What's interesting is you, is you make a, um, a comparison to the captivity of this generation and the captivity in Egypt, right? Um, God in Egypt took a powerful leader and broke him in order to deliver his people. What we're gonna see here historically is that God actually took a, a, a humble people, uh, a minority people, the, the Persians, Uh, and actually elevated Cyrus and gave him uh, the ability to have conquest over sort of the known world of the time and make him rise to power in order to deliver his people. So whereas Pharaoh was brought low and weakened so God's people could be delivered, God actually rose Cyrus to greatness in order that he would deliver his people. We actually know that to be true because it's prophesied in Isaiah. You look at Isaiah 44, the end of 44 and the beginning of 45 um, God actually writes about Cyrus. What's interesting here is that the Persian people would have were actually a conquered people at the time of Isaiah's writing. So it wasn't that the Persians were in anybody's mind this great world power to be. And Cyrus was clearly a Persian name uh, that would have not actually been known probably to the readers here um, when Isaiah wrote this. But um, one one of Isaiah's writings here in Isaiah, the end of forty-four, verse twenty. 8, he says, um, God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. So you imagine the confusion of that prophecy, you know, at the time of written, number one, who's this person, Cyrus, and how could Cyrus be um, my servant? And we don't need a foundation and a temple. (laughs) You know, what does it mean it's going to be built? But certainly in God's sovereignty in his hand, he, he, rose, he, he caused Cyrus to be great, to conquer the peoples. And Isaiah goes on to talk about him conquering peoples and raising him up as a mighty leader. And so we see in Ezra 1, historically, um, Ezra starts this way. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord of the, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. So Cyrus makes this declaration in his first year of conquering Babylon. And you would imagine that there are hundreds of people groups, if you will, in Babylon at the time. But he singles out Israel, he singles out the people of God, and he says this, The Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So Cyrus recognizes that his his ability to conquer all the peoples of the earth was by the hand of the God of Israel. Even though he didn't worship the God of Israel, he recognized that that's what happened. And he's given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now a king of his stature didn't, nobody told him what to do. No one could charge Cyrus to do anything, but he recognized the authority of this God of Israel to the point. He said, he's charged me to do this. Um, So And he actually allowed me to conquer the people so that I would do this. And not only am I going to do this, but I'm going to freely provide for the people of God all the provision that they need to make the journey and to rebuild the temple. You think about, go back to Egypt, that not only did God bring Pharaoh low, but, they, but he caused the people to plunder the Egyptians in order to have the wealth. And he provided with them man and quail after the exodus. Well, here we see God raising up a king, giving the people freedom to leave and providing wealth freely and abundantly and providing everything necessary during the journey to get uh, out. So sort of a first Exodus account and a second account. But this, the theme here is that the the kings are in God's hand and God's sovereign among, um, among the world, and he will fulfill the covenantal blessings and covenantal promises that he's made to his people. So here he will bring them back and he's doing it through this, um, this King Cyrus. It's, it's two exoduses a
1: thousand years apart both cases a a minority people is freed from a incredibly powerful majority and so even though there's not the 10 plagues attached this time to really look and see this as as the work of the lord um in the same way it just it looks a little different obviously so, um okay so they 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 leave what is what is leaving captivity and returning to uh returning to the promised land look like i mean is it hey we're just we're all loading up at one time you know big caravan it's hey we're gonna meet at at persia at 245 and load up and let's go what does that what does that look like
0: it doesn't look like all of the nation of israel immediately celebrating standing up packing up their bags grabbing the silver vessels and things that cyrus promised and leaving um you know we might think that would happen you know um But 70 years in captivity, some of them wouldn't be able to travel. Some of them maybe have settled into Babylon. Um, Maybe there's some doubters. I'm not sure. But we know from a scriptural account, the word says that God stirred their hearts. Ezra makes that clear, that God stirred the hearts of some to go. So God stirs a number. Uh, We don't know the exact, uh, you know, how he did that. but But there were people that were stirred. They wanted to go back. And they went back in three waves, actually. Uh, the first two waves we get in the book of Ezra, recorded in Ezra, the third wave is from Nehemiah. Wave one was 538 BC, led by a man named Zerubbabel, who became governor. Um, That's one of those
1: Bible names that hasn't caught on yet. Yeah, you Zerubbabel. Know, like, w- w- when are people going to start naming their children Zerubbabel? Maybe you should try that, Yeah, Henry. I should do that. Because
0: <laughs> You had a little girl just recently. Yeah, though, so uh,
1: That was actually our boy name.
0: Oh, well. As hmm. far as you know. We'll get into some exciting stuff about yeah. Zerubbabel later. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil the punchline here. Okay, so he's um, wave one. Yeah, so wave one, five thirty eight B C. You've got um, Zerubbabel mm-hmm. in the lead, who eventually was governor, uh, appointed governor by the Persians of Judah. Traveling with him was a guy named Joshua or Joshua, who was actually high priest at the time. So God did preserve the lineage of the high priest um, in in Joshua or Joshua, and so the two of them led this first wave back. And they had really one big goal, and that was to rebuild the temple. They wanted to reestablish the city, but their primary goal was to rebuild the temple, and you see that. And it happens. In Ezra 3, we see an account of them starting and and at least laying the foundation. Ezra 3.10, it says, The builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And this is what they say, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And you imagine the freshness of that praise. This wasn't just a repeating the Psalms. These are captive people. They were under the most powerful empire ever known to man at the time. And God stirs up a pagan king to send them out. And when he sends them out, he provides for them everything that they need and they go back and and just laying the foundation brings such joy that they celebrate and they give God this great praise that you know what? His steadfast love endures forever. Which is the same phrase that they
1: say when the temple's built under Solomon, his loving kindness endures forever. Absolutely. And so it's just this consistent Yeah, it does.
0: Yeah. What we see historically in wave one is after they've laid the foundation, you think, Well, this is great. I mean, imagine all of the joy that goes, in they're not going to stop. Well, the reality is opposition comes. So you have some, some characters here that rise up that don't like the fact that they're rebuilding and they cause trouble. They write letters to kings. They, they um, threaten the, the Israelites. And so they stop building. They stop building. We see that um, uh, in Ezra 4 and 5 and 6. Um, they stop building and, and they're done. And they go back to their homes. They start building their homes and, it, and for 16 years, the temple lays there uh, as just a foundation only, and, and they're done. After all that God did to bring them out of captivity, they, uh, they pause. And so the construction stops because of persecution. The people go back out to the villages or out outside the city and, and begin to establish their homes. And so what happens, as God often does, is God sends a prophet to remind them of his promise and ro- remind them of the consequence of not obeying the Lord. You would think, again, that that would be fresh on their minds. They knew, and we know from Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah 1, that it was the sins of their father and their own sins that drove them into captivity in the first place. And so you would think that they would be careful to obey God fully here as God charged Cyrus to build him a temple by sending his people back and giving them provisions. But the people were supposed to do the work and do the building, and they stopped. So 16 years goes by, and so God sends a man named Haggai, And he tells Haggai to to speak to the people of Israel so they'll continue construction. Um, Basically, Haggai says, you need to pay as much attention to building God's house as you do your own house. We get this um, Haggai 1, kind of as soon as he comes on the scene, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So that really summarizes, you know, Haggai's role, his ministry to God's people is to remind them that God called them to build a temple and they have lots of excuses. Well, it's not time to rebuild the temple, 16 years of not building. He says, oh, it's not time to do what I've called you to do, but is it time for you to continue to panel your homes and, and basically live in comfort and wealth While my house lies in ruins, my house is to be a testimony to the nations. I freed you from Cyrus, who made a declaration, my name on display, and you've abandoned that job for your own self, for your own comfort. And so isn't it time for you to get busy? And so that's what Haggai was called to do. Which is interesting there. I'm I'm thinking back on when David
1: 500 years earlier says, uh, is it right for me to live in a really nice house? When the Ark of the Covenant doesn't have a house, he says, "I want to build one." And the Lord says, "No, it's it's not the time. You're not the one to do it. Your son's gonna gonna build that house." Well, here in a sense, it's the opposite. The Lord's saying, "No, it is the time. I've sent you back. It is time." Yeah, so, that's right.
0: And and part of the reason God obviously sends the prophets remind them of the, their history and remind them, you know, of His promises. But I think the people naturally could feel, okay, we're we've sinned again before the Lord. Now what are we going to get? defeated by these guys that are, that are rising up, you know, Tobiah and belt and these guys. And uh, then God sends Zechariah, actually. Zechariah um, basically tells him, if, you, you, if you're obedient now, God's going to bless your future, right? It, you can be restored before God, even now, even in your 16 years, even in living in your panel homes, and even all this prophecy that's, that's right and good that Haggai brings. Zechariah comes on the scene, and he starts in Zechariah 1.3, Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Zechariah tells them, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So th- at that prophecy, the people are stirred up, they're encouraged, and they go back. We see in Ezra 6 that they complete the temple. In 516 uh, BC, they complete the temple. So, so you see him sending wave one back, led by Zerubbabel and Joshua. And they're back to rebuild the temple and establish the city. They begin the temple. The foundation is laid. They celebrate. They worship. They recognize God's love and during forever, they start getting opposition. They stop building. 16 years, they go in comfort and safety. God sends Haggai who reminds them that God's called them to build the temple, rebukes them. They're stung by the rebuke. God sends Zechariah to remind them that God's gracious and kind that if if they return to him, he returns to them and their future uh, will be secure. And so they begin to build, and then you end sort of wave one, if you will, with a temple built and uh, and worship established, um, the beginnings of that anyway in the temple. There's so much there that parallels
1: our own lives in terms of, hey, there's lots of times where the Lord does something in your life, and there's a, hey, I've responded, I've started this work, I've, you know, and that's great, and let's celebrate it, and yet then a lot of times that fizzles out over, over the years. And, you know, there is a, Hey, complete the work that the Lord has started in you. And we trust, you know, in Philippians, he's the one who completes the work and yet there is this, Hey, take, take up effort again. Don't, don't, uh, lay aside what what has been started in you. So there's a a lot of Typically it's
0: not a, you know, like a quick thing, you know, obviously the things that we drop that are important are, are time consuming. And I think about, um, you know from the time they started the foundation to the time they finished the temple was 20 years 16 of that they they floundered but it took 4 years after Zechariah called them back to build for them to actually finish the temple so it wasn't a let's have a rally and a meeting get excited and finish it it was okay let's pick up the trowels pick up the the um you know all of our carpentry tools and let's withstand persecution and get this get this finished so they had to endure um
1: so yeah Okay, so that's wave 1. Uh let's look at let's look at wave wave 2. The temple's done at this point. Um and yet more people come back later. Where where are we in history? What happens with this with this next wave of people?
0: Yeah, so wave 2 is actually led by Ezra himself. So that wave started in 458 BC. So Zerubbabel 538 458 under Ezra and um so about 80 years really um uh, after the first wave Ezra Ezra makes his way back which um, means these are people who didn't go
1: into captivity i mean they've been in captivity since for 130 140 right. years so it was really their grandparents their great grandparents that went into captivity that's they'd right. lived their whole lives in captivity and now they're coming out
0: yeah that's right you, you know in in um when uh, zerubbabel led when the foundation was laid you actually had people there that had seen the old temple you don't see that with ezra and Nehemiah, you know um, too many years have passed and so um so Ezra, uh, yeah, 458 BC, um, Ezra comes back. And his his purpose, it seems, is to um, reestablish the Jews as God's people. And the way he was going to do that was working on their worship and practice, making sure they're reestablishing all of the right worship and right practices before God. And so Ezra comes back. You can imagine, he's, he's ready. He's ready to see the temple, imagining God's people worshiping. Wanting to to bring this wave of people to join God's people as as the Israelites are being reestablished in Judah, the great city of Jerusalem, the great temple of God, established this sort of a to put God's glory on display to the nations. And when he shows up, he gets the report that basically things are as they were prior to captivity. The Israelites are intermarrying with uh, foreign people. The the temple of God is not being maintained right. The 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 worship of God is not being um, honored as per the mandates of the law um, and that the leaders, the chief leaders were actually the worst among, among them all. And I think Ezra's response to me personally was very convicting. Um, Ezra didn't, didn't immediately go and preach and, and have a council meeting and, and, and really stir the people, rally the people. He was personally broken by the sin it said that he he sat appalled. He, he, was, he was broken. He he tore the the hairs out of his beard and, and hairs from his head. And he sat just broken before the Lord. Ezra knew that it was that very thing that brought God's people into captivity in the first place. And he had to be just devastated at the thought that, that here we go again. God is a just God. He's a faithful God. God requires holiness of his people. God has to honor. His covenant. God has to honor his name. God will glorify himself. And this is not doing it. And if God's more glorified to bring us back into captivity and it rightly judges us, then we're gonna go back. And so so Ezra just, you know, feeling that weight of the sin of God's people. And he just he couldn't do nothing but to fall at that spot and to pull the hair from his head and just um, just grief over. Even, his,
1: even though it wasn't him. I mean, it wasn't that Ezra right. had married a pagan woman or something, uh, you know, had, had committed this grievous sin. He, it is on behalf of the people. He feels the weight of that.
0: He, he does. And actually um, he, then he confesses on behalf of the people. Um, you know, he, he, he says, he begins with his, this confession and that, you know, deeper into, into chapter nine, verse six, he says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted to the heavens. So you get this opening prayer is just this overwhelming. You know, I, I'm I'm ashamed to come before you because of our plural, our national sin, uh, the sin of our people. that Your people have dis, dishonored you, and the people watch him. They people observe Ezra in this long prayer of repentance and brokenness, and and, and as ashen and sackcloth and And uh, you get this great response from them in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And then they say this, we have broken faith with our God. We've married foreign women and the people of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God. Put away all these wives, their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. And then they, they talk to Ezra. They say, arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. And so then Ezra rises up from his repentance and sees the fruit of his prayer, sees God breaking the hearts of their people, confessing sin. And Ezra knows at that point there's hope you know, God, God honors prayer. God, God does that work and God's going to respond and, and save his people.
1: Yeah. There's a phrase there that, that you read, even then there's hope for Israel. And I mean, you could argue that phrase is, you know, in a sense a subtitle for these books of the Bible, maybe for the, the whole old Testament, you know, even then there is hope for, for Israel. And so, um, okay. And so that, that's where Ezra, the book of Ezra ends. It also, Ends this second wave in a sense, and then we turn to um, this this last group that comes, this third wave. What does that look like?
0: Yeah, so Ezra returns. Uh, Twelve years go by from Ezra's you know Exodus from Babylon, and then Nehemiah comes, and Nehemiah leads another another group. Um, Nehemiah's goal seems to be to rebuild the city walls. We assume that's to protect Israel. Really, a city wasn't a city unless it had a boundary, right? And so. So he wanted to rebuild the wall to define Jerusalem, to protect Jerusalem from its enemies, um, and so um, and so he comes back. And we, we actually know that's his goal because he says that you know in uh, Nehemiah one uh, we have an, uh, another king and Nehemiah is the cupbearer. He says so Cyrus has died at this point. I mean we're yeah. we're way in the future, and so that's it's right. a Different king, yeah, that's right. There are actually three kings that play a role in uh, in these three three waves, and so. Nehemiah gets this report in Nehemiah 1 about the city of Jerusalem. He, he wants to know, how's it going? How's the exile happening? How's Ezra, right? And they say this, the remnant there in the providence who had surveyed the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. So that's all we know of what they told him. That's the, the full testimony that the scripture um, reports. So Nehemiah gets this word that the, the walls uh, are, are destroyed, the gates are destroyed by fire, and his response is not unlike Ezra's. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. But Nehemiah knew God, he knew God's covenant, he knew God's faithfulness, and he knew God would judge sin accordingly. Yeah, I mean,
1: you, you mentioned the parallel to Ezra repenting. I also think of Daniel, that's something we, we talked about in an earlier podcast. I mean, just this theme of people in exile who recognize why they're there in a sense and are, are driven to repentance. There's a there's a theme there. So okay, so Nehemiah, um, so he repents. He goes to the king.
0: Keep keep walking forward. Yeah, so he goes before the king, and in the end, amazingly, he's released to lead a group of people back to rebuild the wall and provided abundantly for and protected along the way. So that actually kicked off this wave in four forty five B C. Okay, so they go back and it goes.
1: Well goes poorly. What, what is it? What's the process of, of building
0: a wall? He rallies the people and they begin to, to build the wall. Just like in, um, when Zerubbabel was rebuilding the temple, people, neighbors began to, to respond in opposition, began to appeal to the king to say there's something going on. You have someone here that's trying to rebel. And then Nehemiah responds with great leadership. He, he doesn't let the people stop and um, go back to their homes and live in fear, as uh, maybe Zerubbabel had done. Um, but we see him responding. He says when, uh, this is chapter 4, 15, we get a great picture of this. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall, and he goes on to talk about that. So Nehemiah devised a plan. Look, we have opposition; therefore, we need to be proactive. So we're going to divide the work crew. Half of you are going to stand ready to defend, while the other half works. And uh, that's how the work of uh, work continues.
1: Okay, so so they have this opposition. They have this new plan of half the people will build the wall, half the people will defend. Uh, in the meantime. And then the wall gets done. So in a sense, it, it feels as if that's the conclusion because Nehemiah starts with, uh, let's go build a wall. It ends with, let's, we finish the wall. And yet that's not the end of Nehemiah. It's only about halfway through the book. So draw the history of all of this, Ezra and Nehemiah, to a close. What happens that second half of Nehemiah? In a sense, what happens after the wall is done?
0: Yeah, so when the wall is finished, now we have a temple built thanks to Zerubbabel and the people of God and the two prophets, you know, Haggai and Zechariah, who, who um, called them back to building. We have um, a city established. We have the right sort of worship practices within the temple and among God's people. We have a wall now that is completed marking um, Jerusalem as a city and, and a protected city, in a sense, moving them towards being a sovereign city, although they're still under Persian protection at this point. Um, and so, really, the rest of Nehemiah, we just see um, Nehemiah and Ezra teaming up to reform God's people to right living, to purity, to, to to righteous behavior before God. It really transitions in Nehemiah eight, where you have Ezra standing before the people from early in the morning through midday, reading God's laws. So, God's law yet again being the primary thing that He uses for God's for His own people to understand how to live, how to worship Him, what He expects of them. You see, Nehemiah 8, it says, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So, So that really begins the second half of Nehemiah. Ezra reading the law, the people being convicted by the law, being reminded and stirred up by the law, and by the end of this sort of teaching, it says that other leaders among the people who could understand the law began to explain to the different families what they mean. what does it mean that Moses requires this? What does it mean that God says this? And so they they taught, they shepherded, loved the people well by, by getting God's word into their homes, into their lives, back on the doorposts of their houses. and uh, and so that really walks sets up I guess walking us through the rest of the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah hears of certain things, He'll go and he uh, addresses them with the people. The people repent. They, they write themselves before a holy God, and then Nehemiah will go and, and hear other accounts. You see in Nehemiah 9, you know, this great confession of the people that really kind of sums up their understanding of who God is in the midst of all of the troubles that they've faced. He says, Our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, there's those terms again, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the king of Syria to this day. So there's this appeal that we've suffered, Lord, we've suffered. Let this not not be forgotten that we've actually gone through suffering. But it comes in the reality of they're reminding him that he's a covenant keeper and he's steadfast. He has steadfast love, and they make this this declaration: You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. It's a great summary of what these reforms are about. It's Nehemiah as a reminding the people that God is a covenant-keeping God, that God will be faithful to those covenants, that he requires righteousness, that he has faithful, steadfast love on their behalf. And everything that's happened to them, even though God's comforting through affliction and redeeming them, rescuing them from captivity, all of that stuff has come because of their wickedness, and so the people you see they have a proper perspective and in that proper perspective, the hope that Nehemiah and Ezra have now is that they would live that out in a proper way, but we don't see them doing that. The rest of Nehemiah you see continually Nehemiah confronting people that um, that are in in wrong life practice. Uh, and you get this uh, it goes all the way to the end of Nehemiah 13, and there's sort of a funny account I think towards the end of 13 that you see. Nehemiah's frustration's growing that the people of God just can't get it. Um, if you remember when Ezra heard of the sin and saw the sin of the people and all these reports, that Ezra fell, he pulled his beard hairs and he pulled the hairs out of his head. But this is what um, Nehemiah does in the end here after a story after story and account after account of them not keeping the Sabbath and marrying foreign wives. He says this, I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair and I made... I made them take the oath of the name of the God saying, you shall not give your daughters, to their sons, their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And he just goes on. So at some point, Nehemiah is just like, I'm done with you people, right? I mean, he, he sees it, uh, you don't get it. You're not willing to live right before the God. And so he, he takes it in, in, in his own hands. Um, but that really kind of gives the bookends of that reformation. God's been faithful and good to us. We've deserved it because of wickedness. All the way to you're still doing it. What are you doing? Why are we continuing to fail before a holy God? And Nehemiah tires himself to this task to the point he ends the book saying, "This is what I've done. I've cleansed everything. I've cleansed them from foreign things. I've established the duties of the priests and Levites. Lord, I provided for the wood offering and appointed times. Uh, Only remember me for good, O God." So you get a, a a picture of Nehemiah. Exhausted at the end of his life, reminding God that I served faithfully. I did all these things. I don't know it's enough, and that really ends the history of God's people. I don't know if it's enough, and that rings for four hundred years. How can my effort actually redeem me and make me right before God? Because I remember that it's to my wickedness that has brought this upon us. And, And there's the this crying out for but what's the real answer? At what point am I redeemed?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, earlier we talked about the phrase you read in Ezra, even then there's hope for Israel. There's kind of these two phrases and there's that, and then there's the, but it's still not enough. I mean, you know, those are kind of these two echoing phrases. One, this continual hope. And two is the continual longing and need for something else, you know, that, that kind of ring through all of this. So, uh, with that, Kevin, why don't you draw draw in a sense the Old Testament to a close for us? Um, say a couple words uh, about Haggai, Zechariah, uh, and then the one book we haven't touched yet is Malachi, which is also the the final book in the Old Testament. And so, look at those briefly, uh, and then kind of tell us where we end the Old Testament. Where where are we uh,
0: as a as a people in a sense? Yeah. So closing out the Old Testament. And sort of looking back to see what God has established at this point, we know that men lived in the garden before God, right before him. Adam and Eve sin, they fall. God promises through Eve that she would have a seed that would eventually defeat Satan. Through that, we know that God raises up a man named Abraham. The seeds of Abraham would bless the nations. God would bless them. They would be his people. We see that promise. We see one of his um, descendants, Judah, somebody from the tribe of Judah would raise up and be this lion, this this champion for God's people, even though the people continue to fail. You see they place hope in that lion. One of Judah's descendants is David. We know that the Davidic covenant said that a, a, an heir of David would reign on God's throne or on the throne forever as king. So there's more hope that people fail, but they they hang on to these things. Where's this seed? God, If we sin so much that the seed of, of Eve is gone, won't come, or the, the seed of Abraham or, or the, the lion of Judah or the, the descendant of, of David. And, and you walk through the Old Testament of God just reminding, sending prophets, reminding them of his covenant, his, his promises throughout. And you see the nation of Israel fail, repent, restored, fail, repent, but never was God unfaithful to these covenants. Even when the people didn't understand Never were, was God unfaithful. So they, he gave them the land. He gave them circumcision. He gave them the temple. He gave them temple worship. They made them his people, um, delivered them time and again. And we end in the Old Testament almost with all of that back, that hope beginning to restore. They, they, in captivity, there's no way that they had, you know, they, they didn't have that hope, right? It was all just you know, a few people reminding them, hey, don't forget the covenants, don't forget the covenants. And now we have this, ending of the Old Testament, the people being reminded you're a covenant keeper and your steadfast love endures forever, and yet is it done? Is this it, this new Jerusalem, this new temple, this new city, these new leaders, the new high priest? And and Zerubbabel was actually of the lineage of David. And so the, the lineage of David was actually preserved. So Zerubbabel being appointed as governor highlighted yet again God's faithfulness to the Davidic covenant. Joshua, the high priest, being faithful to the priesthood, so all of these things are in in a sense in place, but it, they're they're not completed. There's no sense to the people. And yet, that's
1: your phrase. It, yeah. It's the
0: and yet, yeah. and that and yet sort of rings through and brings us even the final prophet Malachi, who speaks into sort of that that and yet a little a little bit more. Um, so the prophets themselves um, play a role in reminding them of the covenants. Calling them to be faithful to what God's doing. Um, Haggai, focusing on the work of God's people. Right, you you, you started to build the temple. You stopped. Now you're in your paneled houses. Keep going. Don't forget. Do the work of His people. Zechariah called at this point then to focus on the faith of God's people with these different visions that Zechariah gives us, and and Zechariah gives us uh, these eight eight visions of future things to come that are to remind them to have faith that God is going to do as he said he's going to do. There is a, there is a new something coming, uh, a new high priest, a crown that will be uh, on that high priest. Um, there will be one who um, is a Messiah, a future king that will ride on a donkey that we see. Um, we see in Zechariah, there's a son coming that will be pierced. Zechariah tells us there's a good shepherd coming that'll be struck down. And in the end, there's a king, a final king that will triumph. So, so have faith. So whereas Haggai was focused on the work of God's people, Zechariah reminded them to have faith. It was the faith of God's people. And then Malachi comes and reminds us that really it's about the purity of God's people, purity in your worship and your purity of your understanding that this coming Elijah would usher in the Messiah. And, and Malachi's voice is that one that, that lingers the longest. Um, because he's the last, the last prophet. Malachi is unique. He has um, these six disputes between he and God. So God, God says, you've done this. And, and Malachi says, how have I done this? And then God reminds them, shows them uh, how he's, they've been unfaithful, unfaithful to marriage, unfaithful to, to the Sabbath or to, to giving and these things. Um, and that, that's really uh, unique. But again, it's all focused on uh, reminding God's people to be pure before him. To be pure in their practice and their motivation, and that one would come, this final Elijah would come, ushering in the Messiah. So have faith.
1: It's been good to walk through the Old Testament over over these uh, these podcast episodes. Uh, Kevin, thanks for thanks for closing it out today. Um, we are gonna gonna move forward and look at the New Testament, and so. Um, let us know if, if you have something that you say, hey, I, I really appreciate this about um, the way these podcasts are done, and we'll, we'll look at responding to that. But we're going to move forward in future episodes and look at the New Testament, and and, um, and yet it's been good to look at the Old Testament just see this story of God glorifying himself by dwelling among the Holy Covenant people. Kevin, like you mentioned, starting at the Garden, ending here in Malachi with this and yet in a sense and it's this sense of longing that i think we want to we want to be left with so kevin thanks for doing this today and we'll do it again sounds great always enjoy it thanks
0: you've been listening to the light bears institute podcast a production of light bears ministries for more information visit lightbears.com